Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And this makes me feel pretty Victorian, but I want to let everybody know that I have been to a hypnosis show before. And I think, Katie, you have too. Yeah, back in college. Back in college, UGA. The show I went to was in the gym. And the hypnotist, you know, brought out folks from the audience, weeded some of them out, and then supposedly hypnotized the rest. And it was tame. You know, they didn't do anything that... They would be terribly ashamed of. There Ours was, acted like chickens and like flapped all around the stage. There was some clucking. Britney Spears dancing, I think. I would have done and, that without being hypnotized. And basic like slumping in your seat. There was definitely no poking with needles or shooting of guns or knives under fingernails, which I'm really glad of because I think that would have made me very uncomfortable to see at a college performance. No, I want my money's worth. Oh, gosh. Well, Okay. It's finally almost Halloween. We've been talking about these spooky topics for the past month, and we're going to bring our series to a close with a little discussion of hypnosis. You probably saw that coming. Specifically, its predecessor, mesmerism, which if you've ever heard of it, it's probably in relation to the word mesmerize. And it's pretty weird and spooky on its own, but it's also connected to so many famous names that it starts to get pretty interesting, especially for us history lovers. The uh, string of people connected to it don't always have all that much in common. It's an illustrious list, though. It is very, yes. And um, when you look at some of the literature of the time, it becomes really clear that regardless of whether people thought it was a scam or not, it had a big influence on the public consciousness during the Enlightenment and then again during the Victorian era, which is what I always connected to as well. Definitely. All right. So, Katie... Let's get hypnotized. Mesmerize me, Sarah. (laughs) All right. So we're going to start with Franz Anton Mesmer, who, um, you know, hypnosis had been around for a long time, obviously, connected with sorcery and magic and medicine. But its scientific history started with this Mesmer guy. He was born in what is now Germany in 1734, and he attended the University of Vienna. And in 1766, he wrote his dissertation on animal gravitation. And that sounds not at all like what it is, but his ideas were partly inspired by this British physician named Richard Mead. But Mesmer's idea was that we all had this invisible fluid inside of us. And in fact, everything in nature had this invisible fluid. And the fluid was controlled by the gravitational attraction of the planet. So, so like the moon and tides. Exactly. So like you have internal tides inside your body. And in 1773, he met patient Fraulein Osterlin, who had some physical problems, and Mesmer decided to put his theories to the test. Let's see if her tidal fluctuations are out of balance. So he tried to create this artificial tide inside of her by having her swallow an iron solution, which sounds terrible, but Sarah was reminding me there is iron in my cereal. Sprinkle it in. If you'd ever do that high school chemistry experiment. Then he put magnets on her stomach and legs, and she said she felt this occult force, this fluid in her body, and began to feel better. And eventually she completely recovered after a few treatments. So obviously 
you know, word gets around about something like that happening. And over time, Mesmer tweaked his theory and renamed it animal magnetism, which again, doesn't sound like what it is. Um, and he considered that the fluid followed the laws of magnetism. So it's weird, but at this point, everything was starting to seem a little more legit and scientific. There's some vague science Following attached. laws, but it also got weirder and more ritualistic. And that's partly because of the rituals Mesmer himself attached to it. He figured that disease was the result of fluid blockages or some sort of disequilibrium of these internal tides. And the operator, so the, I mean, what we would consider the hypnotist today. The mesmerist. The mesmerist um, could help restore that balance by acting as a conduit to the greater world of magnetic fluid. So you couldn't access that magnetic fluid just alone, but somebody else could do it for you. Powerful operator. (laughs) And this was done with a magnetized object or by the passing of hands over the patient called magnetic passes. And eventually the patient would experience uh, what he called a crisis, which was a trance, sometimes ending in convulsions and delirium. We all, we found this all a bit suggestive. Very suggestive. Especially when you consider that most of the patients are women. And he's a guy. So he even came up with a special tool that he invented for the purpose of treating multiple patients at once called, I think, a baquet. And unsurprisingly, he gets famous for his it's crazy, semi-pseudoscientific yeah. antics. Mozart is a follower, and he even performs music in Mesmer's honor. And then also, unsurprisingly, there's a scandal, and the Viennese physicians expose Mesmer as a fraud. He leaves Austria in disgrace and goes to Paris in 1778. And he finds a pretty willing audience in Paris, and that's partly because the city was already so awash in all these discussions and demonstrations of gravity and magnetism and electricity. So this idea about this magnetic force and fluid in your body seemed to fit more or less in with the rest of it. And he would set the mood for these demonstrations, playing the instrument du jour, which was Franklin's glass harmonica, to induce deeper trances. And Sarah says you have to go listen to it, which I haven't yet. I don't think you can. I I could never describe what it sounds like. But, I mean, it's kind of like if you've ever seen anybody play crystals with water, Mm -hmm. except they're all stacked on top of each other and it can be played seamlessly. So you're not chiming away at it. It's a very eerie, mysterious sound. And just sort of a weird side note on the glass harmonica. Um, eventually, people thought that it was dangerous to your mental health. So it's sort of ironic that it's being used in conjunction with to cure treatment you. and mesmerism. They thought that listening to the glass harmonica, if you were already in a delicate state, could possibly cause mental illness. So maybe you shouldn't listen to it, actually. <laughs> I, I, maybe in small doses. Are you okay so far? Are you feeling a little I'm, nuts? I'm feeling all right. I don't know. I only listened to like a couple YouTube videos worth. I'll, I'll check in with you tomorrow. But Marie Antoinette really liked Mesmer, and he was, I think she was just bored at that court, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. He was frequently invited to the French court to perform for the queen, but that ultimately proved to be his downfall because Louis XVI was not so into this whole thing. He's a skeptic. So he put together a commission to investigate Mesmer's science, quote unquote. The members include Ben Franklin, Antoine Lavoisier, the Paris mayor, Jean Bailly, and even Dr. J- Dr. Joseph Guillotin, who um, 
you know, is, is behind something that <laughs> sounds that a little <laughs> similar to his name. Yeah, the guillotine. Weirdly, a few of the commission members meet their fate with the, the real deal. Don't get into pseudoscience then. No. <laughs> Franklin is a bit sickly at the time, so this commission works from his house. And Mesmer, of course, you know, he's... He wants to defend his reputation. He has to defend it. But he also wants to distance himself from the commission. You don't want to go there, Mesmer himself, and demonstrate your theories and your ideas and have it all blow up in your face. Especially if you have a suspicion that you might be a bit of a fraud. It won't work quite right. Or maybe maybe you wouldn't even think that. You would just think, oh, the commission wouldn't get it right. So Mesmer sends an assistant, Dr. Charles Deslin, to represent him. That way, you know, if this guy messes up, Mesmer can blame it on him. So Deslin demonstrated some of the Mesmerism techniques for the panel. At one point, he magnetized a tree and then had this subject ID the tree that had the most force. Unfortunately, the 12-year-old blindfolded boy starts going in the wrong direction, saying, you know, I feel the force increasing, um, tree A. <laughs> going down the line of trees, going further and further away from the, the actual... The going, no, tree B. Tree. tree. I can just imagine the guy watching this and, you know, face in, in hand. Well, and then the kid fainted. Yeah, and that put an end to the demonstration. So a few of these, and the commission concludes that there's no scientific evidence behind mesmerism. They publish a report, and that's really that for mesmer himself in Paris. He falls out of favor almost immediately. He dies in obscurity, but he does not fall out of memory. No, he's still in the back of everyone's heads. One of his main fans is Armand-Marie-Jacques de Chastenay, who is a marquis and an aristocrat who starts doing these experiments with mesmerism with uh, the help of a young man on his estate, even before Mesmer was out of commission. And the Marquis would hypnotize the guy and then leave him with no memory. And he came to believe that the magnetic effects depended on the operator's belief and the rapport with the patient. So more like the two people involved in it and the relationship yeah. between the two than just I am waving a wand. Over mass here. mesmerization right. that Mesmer himself was doing. And um it it's interesting, you know, the guy who he's working with will talk quite openly when he's in this mesmerized state, tell um you know, tell this aristocratic master of his things that he wouldn't normally say, like I had a fight with my sister and then after he gets some advice on how to deal with it, he has no recollection, but he still acts on the advice. Weird stuff like that. So it still sounds kind of out there, but the Marquis' work in 1784 on his experiments are sometimes considered the start of modern psychotherapy. And I mean, I can see that to a certain extent. Yeah. They're talking to each other and trying to drawing get out everything one out there. Secrets. Yeah. So mesmerism really started to get its second wind in the 1830s and 40s. It spread to the United States and influenced William James, the psychologist and the brother of Henry James. And it was simultaneously supported and disproven in 1843 by the English doctor James Braid. He concluded that this whole fluid idea was nonsense. But he also decided that these physical effects were real and they were produced by, quote, a peculiar condition of the nervous system induced by a fixed and abstracted attention, end quote. So this is a real thing. You induce it through this 
through this process, mm-hmm. and then it it does have effects on your nervous it system. It has nothing to do with magnetic fluids. No in internal tides. And so you know, trying to <laughs> distance this idea, trying to distance the effects of mesmerism from mesmerism itself, which has this shady reputation, Braid coins a few new terms. One of them is hypnotism. Another is hypnosis. And he starts to investigate the applications of hypnosis in paralysis and rheumatism and, you know, just treating it more like a possible medical science. French doctors and scientists follow his lead. And by the 1880s, scientists really start tackling hypnosis as, you know, as a real thing. And at this point, we can separate hypnosis from mesmerism. But don't think that mesmerism went away. It just Science, Science took a different track. I'm thinking parallel tracks. Yeah, we're going to get back to the mesmerism. Two. But these more modern scientists accepted that, yeah, it definitely doesn't involve physical forces, no fluid. Instead, it had something to do with your mind. And Sigmund Freud actually got really interested in hypnosis. And it's something that had a very big effect on psychology, even though he abandoned it pretty quickly for free association. It was just too hard to actually get people into a translation. Missing state. that rapport, Freud. <laughs> and um, by World War One, World War Two, we have hypnosis being used on returning soldiers. And it's not just a sideshow act anymore. It's part of psychology. But interestingly, we still don't understand what hypnosis really is. There's no generally accepted explanation for, for how it works. Yeah. But I'm going to go back to mesmerism, which did become a bit of a sideshow act and yet still was considered somewhat as quasi-medical. So between the 1840s and 1880s, mesmerism got completely drawn into this both spiritualism and stage demonstration. So it's a pop culture hit, but if you were a self-respecting physician, there is you wouldn't even touch that with temple pole. No, it would ruin your career. But if you were an itinerant mesmerist, you might have a pretty good career. That's my backup career. Yeah. Actually. I think you could, I think you could pull it off, Katie. Um, so these folks would travel around Britain, travel around different countries and perform these shows. And the shows would bring in a paying audience, but the main point of them was to try to attract private clients for personal treatment because they would give you the big bucks for mesmerizing them. And you think that these shows might sound fun, kind of like the UGA shows we described at the beginning, but the knives under fingernails, I was not making that up. That's unfortunately a real thing. Well, and and worse. Let's see, we've got uh, pouring acid on the skin, administering electric shocks, putting ammonia in people's mouths, uh, firing pistols near their ears. And the weird thing about this is it's not just the mesmerists who are doing this to try to prove that it's real. It's skeptics. So people would come to this saying mesmerism is fake. I can disprove it by, you know, firing a pistol by this. Watch, if I stab this guy, he's totally going to stand up. (laughs) Yeah. So you would end up with just escalating brutalities on these poor, supposedly mesmerized people. And, um, you know, it, it worked to both ends. If the patient jumped when the gun was fired by her ear, it's a fake. You know, we've exposed it. If nothing happened, then people thought either it was all real or it was such good fakery that it was really, really sick and disturbing. And in case you're wondering about why we titled our podcast, <laughs> what we did, 
That's from a New York Times article from 1897. And the headline... Was, yeah, the headline is, He was killed by mesmerism, exclamation point. Exclamation point. And... I mean, when I, when I read it, it's, it's about this young man, Spurgeon Young, who died after a few days illness and quote, it is now claimed that death resulted from injuries received while under mesmeric influence at the hands of amateurs in this science. Coroner Bowers has summoned a jury and will make a thorough investigation. Um, it, it's easy to see how somebody could be killed under an amateur mesmerist demonstration if you, read some of these things they did to people. Well, and some people started connecting this this idea of this, you know, unconscious state with surgery, thinking, Pain okay, resistance. well, exactly. Maybe this is a good way to get people through something like amputation. Uh, mesmeric an- anesthesia was used to amputate the leg um, at the thigh of a 42-year-old man named James Womble, who said, he didn't feel anything, um, but it was obviously crowded out before it could get going. That's why you haven't heard many stories about mesmeric yeah. anesthesia, um, because, you know, things like ether came into use instead. Which, another sort of strange side note there, ether and nitrous oxide were, they originally had applications on the stage before they were thought of for medical purposes. Really? So, yeah, kind of a... A strange, it's hard to imagine going to like the cool ether show in town, but (laughs) who knows? So with these itinerant performances, these debates, people getting amputations under mesmeric trance, mesmerism becomes a very contentious thing and the perfect plot point for a romantic or Victorian writer to pursue these altered states of consciousness. They're so into the altered states of consciousness. Well, especially those achieved through opium, um, but also quite effectively done through hypnosis, sleepwalking, and trances. Because not every story can have the opium eater. In. No, some of them just have to have plain trances. So according to this uh, book, Bram Stoker and the Man Who Was Dracula, there's a whole genre of mesmeric novels that combine gothic elements, you know, things that were we're familiar with in much earlier fiction with these more modern scientific ideas. And we have Daniel Dormer, The Mesmerist Secret, Edward Heron Allen's The Princess Daphne, and obviously Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is published a little late in the game for some of this mesmerist stuff, 1897. Um, it was definitely not in anymore. The science wasn't. No. Um, but it's used to great effect by Stoker. Yes, this is one of my favorite books of all time and has a prominent place on my bookshelf. But um, the character of Lucy is often sleepwalking. The vampire uses mesmerism to satisfy his bloodlust and Van Helsing uses it to fight back. It's it's a central point in how everything happens and, and observing what someone is like in a trance and what they can do when they're in this altered state of consciousness, things against their will even. Yeah. So another famous horror writer, too, used it to pretty great effect. That's Edgar Allan Poe. He became interested in mesmerism after he attended this lecture by Andrew Jackson Davis. And his most famous story on mesmerism is The Facts in the Case of Monsieur Valdemar. And the story was so good that people thought it might be true, even though it sounds incredibly outrageous. I'll just give you like a brief plot outline here. There's this mesmerist and he's interested in the effect of hypnosis on a dying person. So he reaches out to this dying friend and gets his approval to 
try to hypnotize him on his deathbed. He puts the guy into a state of hypnosis, and then the guy starts to talk and says, I'm dead, even though he's in this <laughs> trance state. And the guy just remains like that in this inert state for months and months without a pulse, just in this death trance, half living, half dead. And finally, the narrator jostles him out of the trance by repeatedly saying, dead, dead, dead. And um, when he comes to, he immediately rots because he's been sitting there for months dead and turns into this puddle of goo. So I have to read this immediately. I I think it, it sounds like a really great use of mesmerism. It wasn't always used, though, in that that horrifying kind of way. People weren't always rotting and falling into puddles, (laughs) unfortunately, uh, just with a psychological kind of twist. You had a couple examples, I think. Uh, Wild in the picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah, and even Walt Whitman in Poetry of the Sleepers and Song of Myself. And Dickens, who is, of course, arguably the most famous of Victorian novels. (laughs) He is weird. He was very much influenced by mesmerism. In fact... He, he takes it a step beyond somebody like Poe or Wilde. He's actually a mesmerist himself. He performed mesmerism on his wife in Pittsburgh in of 1842. He did. And then, yeah, of course, on this other lady in 1844. Classic Dickens for you. And his final unfinished novel, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, is about an evil mesmerist who sexually manipulates women through Hypnosis, which I have never heard of that book before. Oh, really? No. Candace, a former co-host, um, for y'all who remember from way back in the day, she's reading Drood by Dan Simmons. And I was trying to decide, it's kind of a takeoff on that, if I had to read The Unfinished Mystery of Edmund Drood before. So you can let me know. Um, But that does raise an interesting point about mesmerism, one we brought up earlier, that it's pretty sexual. The patients are nearly almost always women. Uh, something that may have helped that literary success, damsels in distress. And probably hurt its medical reputation, too. And there's also that that crime angle of being hypnotized and doing things against your will. Which that appears in literature for way longer. It's even in, you'll hear actual defenses using that, aside from literature. I was hypnotized. Um, I don't know what to say about that. We even have, there's some sleepwalking murder stories. I wrote an article for the website, HowStuffWorks.com, uh, How Sleepwalking Works, and I was reading many defenses that people have given. I had no idea I killed my wife. I was sleepwalking. Altered states of consciousness. Time to wake up, everybody, because it's time for listener mail. And today we just have a correction for you, and we would say the names of everyone who sent this email in, but it would take a really long time. We misspoke in our Curse of Macbeth podcast. Um, What we had meant to say was that Lincoln was reading a copy of Macbeth days before his assassination, and the passage he was reading was about... The witches. The witches, right, and other kings being assassinated. But the play he was attending wasn't Macbeth. It was Our American Cousin, and I actually knew that but wrote it really confusingly in the outline. So I apologize for that. We do know that it's not Macbeth. 
If you have any corrections to send us or good ideas for podcasts, our email address is historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We've also got a Twitter feed at Missed in History and a Facebook fan page. And if you'd like to learn a little bit more about our subject for today, you can type in sleepwalking or hypnotism on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 